Hello and Happy New Year. Welcome back to the to our Artistically Ours Neurocast podcast. And this is the first and this is the second interview of the year. In the year 2023. The first episode was reviewed yesterday uh, with Mason Mill, the crossover episode we just did. This episode is was supposed to be going out on New Year's Day. It initially went out into two parts, but or was intended for two parts, as the artist used editing it. But now, this is hasn't had to go out in one part, parts one and two. And as the first part they put out last Sunday had some technical issues, as you may have heard a ticking noise that was quite annoying for to listen to and apologize for that and I said and this one is uh, of better quality and for you able to listen to as I said I know it's annoying with the ticking sound or certain background issues listening to podcasts especially if you've got sensory issues I know sometimes on the usual podcast you may hear some background sounds are as in a room recording in the room of that is off next to the kitchen in my household me use some household appliances and, and background stuff so it definitely isn't easy to get the right background to get the right sounds when you were in such a area where the, you love different noises going on in the background as i said this is a reissue of the episode making it listenable and as over the Christmas period uh, and New Year period I'd taken some time off for medicine and the like each podcast going on from now will be in top quality uh, in with producing top quality this is and moving for, forward uh, just to say, this is the last episode that will be put out on a Sunday in the regular slot. Moving the regular slot to Thursday mornings, putting it out at 8am UK time. And as I said, hopefully that'll become a better, you know, time in the week to do it. Uh, and the first episode will be on the Thursdays, will be with... Uh, Natalie Balmain from Make Me Prime Minister Channel 4's programme and then guests Stavel Morris and Harriet Kemsley onwards this January. As I say moving on then to who we got on today's interview is with Sarah Jane Harvey who you may know uh, on social media as Agoniotti. Can't get the words up for them and the pr- pronunciation. She works in the area of neurodivergent and disability advocacy and activism. You may have seen her content on social media. She's also done public speaking. And as you will see, this is the first interview back that she's done after a break of self-care and taking some time out after personal burnout. This was recorded at the head uh, of the new year um, in last autumn and 
as I said, this is hope that you will be able to join me on again on this podcast. And and I fancy a fan went fan so much for sharing her story and said sharing an honest way about her diagnosis and for like touching on a series like Ellis Danlos syndrome to voices got in t- involved in advocacy and activism and touching on some of the injustices and ableism within this area and as I say that just to put a cautionary warning out there before the interview starts it's like touches on themes with include suicidal ideation institutionalization of disabled people and when use of mild explicit language this each theme that I've listed is touched on in brief ways so if you're if uncomfortable with any content discussed in a podcast skip ahead if you are unable to listen to that at this moment in time and just to let you know the patreon web link of where you can subscribe for more content where you can watch this interview will be in the in the description of this episode as with the website link of the uh, new rainbow project as i said this interview is an important one and somebody who's recognised how important it is doing this podcast for myself and somebody who I'm thankful and grateful for her time and to highlight off how much of a privilege it is for somebody to be able to open up and talk to me with personal questions and somebody to trust Oh, with their story, as I say, it's a privilege for anyone to say their story, and as I say, the when to say that their story is in their control to say. So whenever the next interview is, will be in the in service time, and she's in full control of saving her story. With that, this is the interview. Thank you. Um, I'm Sarah. Um, I do a blog called Agony Orty. My main aim is to produce informational videos and to highlight any campaigns that may be of interest for autistic or neurodivergent people. Oh, great. Fancy for introducing yourself. Uh, so I want to start by asking you, you know, how how did you know you were autistic and how did your neurodivergent story start of discovering yourself as neurodivergent? Okay, so um, I was diagnosed when I was 27, so almost nine years ago now. And even though it was a bit of a shock to be diagnosed with autism, it also wasn't because my whole life I was quite aware that I was a, quite different in my behaviour in my emotions, in the way that I fought and played and imagined, in the way that I made friends. And I was constantly being told from the age of a child up until my adulthood that I was weird, different, strange, all the all the words that you can think of, but not autism. That was a new word to come along and it was able to replace the weird, strange, all the other nasty things 
that word autism, it was an answer finally for me to understand myself or to begin to understand myself. So was it like the case that, you know, you were a bit, uh, somewhat surprised with it because, you know, like you were given like labels like weird and strange and you, I guess, well, well, who you were and who you are as being autistic isn't what you make with someone as being autistic at the time of before you were getting diagnosed? So, I mean, my son was diagnosed at a similar time to me and, and that enabled um, for me to digest it. I found it difficult to digest the diagnosis at first, but my son, who was also autistic, he's so similar to me in how he behaves and the noises he makes and the sensory seeking and the squishing and the squawking, that it became difficult for me to reject autism for myself when it was so apparent with with my son as well um but i was relieved to, to have an answer of of my perceived differences um yeah i can imagine yeah i guess you must have felt like things coming together for yourself and you know like finally understanding who you were so i guess was it with you said that like Maybe when he was in school, was it like a teacher who thought he was autistic? And oh, then... oh, that was, it was me. All <laughs> oh, right, I, oh, so I, guess... I spotted it straight away. Oh, very good. Yeah. So I guess you're just like, I guess you noticed what like like an autistic child is, or like a young autistic boy was. And then I guess when you like notice all these things in your son, I guess it was piecing together. Well, I actually do all these things and all these. Like, some of these things kind of relate to how I am, is it? That's it. So, my son was only nine months old. So, a baby. A oh. baby. When I first put the word autism to him, um, I was observing him. And, basically, my son was what... It's quite a nasty way of looking at things, but they call him delayed. Delayed milestones. That was the first sign. But what I noticed was how inquisitive and focused and intense he was at nine months of age, staring at the same thing, spinning the same thing. And it was curiosity. It was intense inquisitiveness. It was intense curiosity. And it's it's so easy to say, oh, intense is bad. Not necessarily. But at nine months, I I knew my son was different. And at 21 months of age, he was diagnosed autistic. Um, and at first, people wanted us to just see how he, he grows, see how he develops. But it was very obvious that he had quite profound needs. Um, and my son is considered to be an autistic with profound needs and with learning difficulties too. Whereas I'm considered to be um, a low support need autistic. Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, like, I, I guess that's something, you know, great as you managed to find out he was autistic at the time you did, because, you know, he was able to, like, make it so he understood who he was, and able to get the support he was, and as you know, like, from not getting diagnosed as any younger, you know, you, were, you weren't offered that privilege, I guess, you must have felt, in a way, sense, grateful for being able to offer your son the ability to understand early on who he was. That's it. That's actually what motivated me to begin the work that I do. 
was my son and his diagnosis because um, the main reason I found it difficult to accept autism was because of how it's written about. It's written about as something that is to be scared of. It's written about as if it was a disease. It was written about as if it was, if you have it, it's like a life ending condition. So as a 27 year old, I was like, why on earth would I want that? Why on earth would I be proud of that? It was a real journey for me to study the medical narrative, put my lived experience and put my son's lived experience so we could add a bit of humanity back into the medical criteria. So instead of deficit, 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 we got to look at our strengths as well. And we got yeah. to be proud. We got to end up conjuring that culture of being proud of our neurodivergencies. Because when you're diagnosed, no one tells you to be happy about it. No one tells you to be proud about it. They tell you to be worried. They tell you to reevaluate your son and your future. It's a very scary narrative. Yeah, I kind of sense that from some of the interviews I've been doing. Like a lot of some of the guests I've been hinting at is that disability phobia and ableism around that. And as you say, you're not that, you know, uh, kind of like was the stigma that you noticed around when your son was diagnosed and then you started to get, you know, get into looking into diagnosing yourself. Mm. And so, like, it seems like you always had, like, a sense of interest about what autism is. Yeah, like, since I was 15, <laughs> I actually tried to write a book um, when I was 15, so 20, over 20 years ago. And my main character was, um, a, a, was an autistic person. She was the sister of an autistic brother. And I don't know why, but I, I was just so obsessed with, that that difference wasn't deficit even as a teen. I was trying to show that these people need more compassion and, and understanding. But I didn't understand what autism was even as a 15 year old. I, I didn't understand it. All I understood is that these people are different and I'm drawn to that, but I don't know why. And then my diagnosis came about 13 years after that after me writing that story and then it fell into place which was okay I'm drawn to autistic people because that's what I am it's what I've always been I just never clinically recognized and this is something I will say for my son with or without his diagnosis he's autistic like he does not need a diagnosis to be autistic he is the most autistic person I've ever met in my life and I say that with so much love he doesn't need that label for me to understand his difference but that label it is supposed to help with things like accessing education but I, I, I worry that the label will stigmatize him the way it has for me as an adult in that many non-autistic non-disabled individuals will assume that we don't have competence and a lot of our human rights, they begin to slide yeah. because of that. So it's a double-edged sword. It's like I can be proud about being autistic and I can settle with it. But also there's the worrying revelation that people will use your autism, your difference, your perceived disability. They'll use it against you. 
to block you out from schools, to block you out from employment, to block you out from communal settings. That And that that's what I mean by it's a double-edged sword. And I'm so proud that the community are building that community, that sense of culture, because it really wasn't there when I was a teenager, even when I was diagnosed, but it is there now. It's starting to come about. And that fights against the negativity and it gives us a space to collectively come together. Um, it gives me hope. It gives me hope that when my yeah, can... son's older, he'll feel like yeah. there are people to go to. Yeah, hopefully, yeah, hopefully there's that hope that carries on for and delivers that and that helps the you know, autistic people feel included and equal within society. As you were saying that, you know, in terms of like the label and stuff like that, you like saying on a like more medicalised side of things and I used to be able to see autism and neurodivergency as a social construct and social identity as well. So like not needing that diagnosis to get that support and validation. But if you say that you're autistic, that you can believe because you know yourself more than anyone else. And as you were saying that, when you found out by researching and looking into things to get support for yourself, then that's the time you noticed you were autistic in yourself. And I guess was the only the case that when you get diagnosis, it's sometimes just to get that support and I guess it can be quite frustrating then if you have to get that diagnosis as the passport to get in support. That's it. And and I feel like it's a, it's a it's a huge false entrapment on behalf of the the medical and political community who have the power because they're saying you need this tick box you need this diagnosis in order for this pathway of support but what many autistic advocates and activists are saying is that even with a diagnosis that pathway for support doesn't exist and it's different from town to town or city to city different from location so we don't have a consistent pathway of support for autistic people um and that's because we don't have any legislation which protects us now we have the autism act which has been recommended to the government but it's not legislation it's not um what's the word where they have to do it sorry i forgot sorry right the word there's a word where they have to do something um it means that mandated or mandated something like that so yeah. the autism act isn't actually it's guidance the autism act is is a guide framework it's not a legislation one and until it becomes a legal one autistic people's human rights are going to continue to suffer like we've had children as young as my child my child's now 11 institutionalized taken 70 miles away from their home and locked away in adult mental health units that's that's unthinkable but it but legally it's plausible and they can get away with that mistreatment so i just feel like the more that autistic people collectively are able to get together and are able to say we are different but we are not subhuman we get to challenge those narratives. And I really believe the challenging of those narratives will help safeguard 
the autistics of tomorrow and the future. Yeah, and I would say it's important of having this community to advocate for the rights of the collective community for our say, you know, autistic, neurodivergent and disabled people. And I guess when you like, I guess some of the worry comes from when we got like Lamed's like deficit delays and difficulties and now we got like the fun like the spectrum of autism used for functioning and labels and I guess some of that made like makes you worried about your son and what's and as I said, you know, like it's your like with your son's diagnosis I help to get involved in such space. So and I guess when you see like see headlines with the uh, you know uh you know, with the uh, issues of, like, you know, as I said, being in mental health for, you know, uh, care services that's supposed to be care services, but, like, ten tents in the centres. I guess that's really, like, emotive and, you know, makes you want to, you know, drive you further. It's definitely emotionally charged. Um, there's definitely a sense of panic and urgency with the work that I do and I've had to really try to calm down with it because it does feel like do or die um, for many members of our community. Many members of our community have lost their lives completely unnecessarily. So it is do or die. And I feel like when we have the government and medical professionals shutting doors, shutting pathways in our face, it is do or die. And that's when the community is so important, not only because we get to challenge the status quo, we get to collectively come together. We are more powerful together than we are individual. We are. And they don't want that. They do not want a collective of disabled autistic people getting together and showing our strength united. They don't want that. But another reason that community is so important is because we do make space for people who haven't got the diagnosis. And that is so vital yeah what do i mean by that with self-diagnosis there is a risk of misdiagnosing yourself there is however if you have studied the autistic criteria if it is something that you have felt is you for years this isn't a decision you've just made overnight this is something that you relate to and empathize with if if you relate to it but yet the diagnosis hasn't been given to you that's a very dangerous place for many autistics who don't know they're autistic. They just think they're weird, they're broken, they're crazy. And that feeds into terrible mental health issues where they really believe that they're a burden instead of having the answer that they need, which is you're autistic <laughs> and there's a whole community here. So I think it's incredible that the autistic community, we make way for those without diagnosis, because we understand that the diagnostic pathway is one of power. You're at the mercy of the, the clinician to give you that diagnosis or not. And we're trying to break away from those power systems. So that's where I love the idea of neurodivergency, because if a misdiagnosis has occurred, say if you're not autistic, but you believe that you are and you relate to it, Within neurodivergency, we've got that landing pillar of you self-diagnose, but you just don't know what it is yet because you've not been given any professional clear answers. So you're welcome in the neurodivergent umbrella and autistics are spearheading that 
And I think that's a wonderful demonstration of our empathy, of the thing that they say we don't have. We're literally making room for people who don't have an official diagnosis and we're doing it out of empathy. Yeah. As I can see from, you know, as you're talking to me now, you you know, you come from a strong sense of justice and hyper-empathetic and, as you say, it's something that's stigmatised in how people perceive autism, thinking we hyper-empathetic and like that. But, you know, we are very empathetic and can be quite hyper-empathetic. But we always see it. It's like we express empathy in a different way because we can show emotions in a different way and be more susceptible to masking our emotions or like experiencing like the confusion of emotions for like electrifying it. So I think if we might, we might not so in the same way as like an holistic person, right? but as you say, it's very empathetic and even though you might not see it, but we are. That is exactly it. That's exactly it. So due to issues such as alexithemia which you just said the difficulty in understanding one's emotion due to difficulties such as disassociation which means that we shut down and we may go inwards so from an outside perspective it looks like we're not really responding and it may look like we don't care it may look like we're being apathetic what i'm trying to say is that outside observations are horribly wrong and to deduce that because we emote differently, that we don't have empathy, I think is a dis- it, for me, it's a disgusting flex from the medical community to try and dehumanize us. They're trying to posit that we are humans without the ability or capacity to care for other people. And it's just like, where is this coming from? And it's like, oh, it's because of how we present. And it's why I really believe that the psychiatric model of autism will be completely rewritten or ripped up with the dawn of neuroscience because neuroscience can show inside the brain. It can show, oh, they're sorting out emotions. Oh, they've shut down. Oh, they're in a survival state. But that doesn't mean that they're not without empathy. What a ridiculous conclusion to jump to. Um, So the psychiatric model is the one that is based on their observations of us, which is very deficit-based, and that's why it was a very difficult model for me to accept when I was first diagnosed. Um, I I couldn't fathom that they would see me as essentially a psychopath, because that's how they often describe autistic people. When, When, truth be told, Autistic people, like you said, are some of the most hyper-empathetic people I have ever met. But in order to safeguard ourselves, we have to sometimes turn that empathy off. Neuroscientifically, that's a survival behaviour. That's not a non-empathy behaviour. And I really do believe the psychiatrists, they've got it so wrong. They've, They've made observations, but they've not explained the root cause or why. Yeah, as you were saying, uh, I think with the, in terms of what you're saying about the medical and psychiatric, uh, you know, model and lens of autism and what neurodivergence is, I think there's a lot of the fact that it's not led by 
autistic and disabled neurodivergent people. And I think if you're not having those people in power where they can research and develop resources on autism and actually be the leaders of research and the medical community that actually looks and reflects on them, you can't get the autistic people's lens on it and you're perceiving it how an autistic person might see autism and that's the wrong window of it. That's, that is 100% it. That's why I'm smiling because that that's it. That, that is, sorry, that's it. It's all right. So the theory of general relativity is that we are all relative to each other, which means we all run parallel. None of us, I can never go into Aaron's head. Aaron can never go into my head, Sarah's. Even though we have the shared experience of autism, which connects us, we are ultimately, relatively, always alone. But we run side by side. Yeah? So yeah. that's what connects us. When you have the power disparity of a therapist looking at an autistic person, what connects us? Oh, yeah. Like, what connects us? Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess you're asking it as questions. But what, what connects what? us is their observation of us. It's their consumption of us, their observation. And they're doing it from a psychological scientific medical lens one of power one of prestige one of authority we are their subject we are their mice and therefore we are at their mercy that it is them who has a compassionate and empathetic lens because yeah, exactly we are being observed and digested through their lens and we run relative to each other with no connectors. So what I mean by this is you can have, and this is often what happened in psychiatry. In psychiatry, they labeled sexuality, uh, homosexuality, lesbianism, being gay. They labeled that as a mental illness, as a mental disorder, because relative to them, they couldn't fathom it because they're straight. They're straight. So they're in the little yeah. bubble of straightness and we're in our little bubble of, like, say, homosexuality, they can't access it. Therefore, they observe it to weaponize it because they don't understand it. It's not their world. They will never be able to connect into that world. They can only observe it. And what has happened is very similar with autistics. You've had non-neurodivergent individuals or non-autistic people, sorry, or autistic people observing us but because it is that black and white indifference, they can't understand it. So of course we look like a disorder to their order. Of course we look like we are deficit to their proficiency. But it's it's a false analogy. It's their observation. And the autistic community, by speaking out, we get to put forward our observations of our lived experience and we get to expand on that but it is exhausting and I feel quite dismayed that we even have to do this, but we do. We have to do yeah. that fight against that medical narrative. Yeah, I was just saying, it's like, like autistic people being led to this point of being having to uh, do the research and put the work in, are quite fatigued and burnt out by it because as you say, not, if you haven't got the access of support and what you need to uh, thrive in a holistic world as we are in, you know, we can 
feel off too much pulled out and like snowed over and off like things feeling big on top of her head before you know getting started with Wallace. So as you're saying it's a lot of work for for us going when we like when the world's not just designed for us to five in. That's it. But it's it's it gets scary because not only can they yeah. they make the observations about us they can then start telling us what is best for us and they yeah. make decisions about what is in our best interest. And that's when the neurodivergency movement is changing those power structures because for the first time in a long time, for the last, I'd say 10 years, maybe five, 10 years, autistic people are being asked, what adaptations do we recommend? What do we have to say? And that's, that's quite new. And that comes about from the Disability Act, really. The nothing about us without us. Um, the Disability Act has only been active for 25 years. Um, as you, it's like, as you were saying, with identities like, you know, homosexuality, lesbianism, and, you know, different, uh, you know, uh, LGBTQ identities. It's only recently when they started to be seen as a social identity and not something as like medical or like a diagnosis and as you're saying still with uh, trans transgender and uh you know all those type of identities still there's still a lot stigma of seeing as like a problematic and like a medical like issue and as you say that kind of still applies to neurodivergent identities as you're saying it's not medical uh, condition is our problem, but as you said early on with your concerns about your own son and with the vaccine, like the stuff with you know, as you say, the what's supposed to be like care places, but the detention centers for autistic people are kind of abused and all like kind of like uh, separated from their families for years on years. I guess it's that same kind of like thing coming back on to what you were saying it's but th th that's it it's an abuse of power yeah. it's an abuse of power because they they put themselves that the professionals have put themselves in a position where quote they know what's best for us when actually they don't they don't know what's best for us they know yeah. how to segregate us and isolate us and to make us worse they know how to do that they've been doing that successfully for centuries but they don't know what's best for us. They, they know how to control and to subjugate us, to make us small. But they don't know how to empower. They don't know how to build us up. They don't know how to help us lead fulfilling lives where we get to thrive instead of survive. And constantly we are in the survival state because when you have, when you have a, a professional with the power saying your son needs to go in this unit and we've got court order the parents can't fight it the person at the center of it certainly can't fight it so my 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 question is well where's the legal help with that and there isn't any because it's not a legal legislation autism act is not in legislation it's a guidance and until that changes we won't have the legal representation that we need fight to keep families in the community instead of institutionalized um so it's about consent 
I feel like autistics consent is ripped off us constantly. And the thing that makes me worry for my son is I know how painful it is to feel isolated, to not be accepted, but to really believe you're a burden. Like I've, in the past, I, I've, I've had multiple attempts on my life because I honestly believed that I needed to go. I, I, I did all the calculations and in my head, I was like, I'm the problem here, I'm the issue. So if I take me out, issue solved. That's what I understand today is called suicidal ideation. And that suicidal ideation is often fed to autistic people because we've had lifelong barriers, lifelong seclusions, lifelong isolations. And that for any human is so painful to the core. Like it hurts your nervous system to be alone when you want connection, to share your work when people want you to stay silent because they're weird ideas. It's a painful experience. And I don't want my son growing up with that, but he is. He's growing up with that pain every other week. And I do my best to try and show him that we love him, that we accept him, but it's not enough. My son needs more than parental acceptance. He needs societal acceptance. He needs to believe that he has a place in this world and that he can survive and thrive. Um, yeah. And he can only get that with those communal settings, those communal just... spaces. So it's about asking the powers that be, because they have the control. It's about asking them to make room for us and to let us in let us into the workplaces, let us into your coffee shops, let us into the hospitals, let us in for care, for education, for community. We deserve that. And autistics often, like myself, we can go antisocial, but I do believe it's a safety mechanism. We do it to keep ourselves safe from harm. We don't do it because we don't want a single friend in our life. We do it because we've been so betrayed that to keep ourselves safe, we can slip into isolation. But no human deserves that. And we are human. <laughs> we're, we're human. And I know it sounds stupid that I even have to say that, but we do because our human type, we have a word for it and it's called autism. Our human type is recognised as autistic. And that's why it's so important that the autistic culture takes that word autism and builds it back up with pride. Because we have been given this label now. What do we do with it? Well, we show them. We show them everything they don't know. We show them that without divergences in cognition, they wouldn't have some of the imaginations that they have today, such as the internet, such as the discoveries that we've made in space, such as quantum physics and the uh, sorry and um, connections like Wi-Fi, like you wouldn't have it without autistics who shut down and were lost in their head all the time to come up with these wonderful, beautiful ideas of the conscious. And we do, we can tap into our conscious, but I feel that autistics we've not been taught how to navigate our consciousness. Yeah, and I was 
you can hint it. Like, we never had the space to, you know, feel comfortable in our consciousness and, you know, feel comfort, feel safe. As I was saying, if you're always in survival mode and we no longer feel, feel we're safe, then it's like a point where, you know, where so many autistic people sadly feel like they can no longer survive. And I was saying, it's like, if you don't have the support, don't have the acceptance and kind of feel alone and don't have many people around you, you feel they can talk to. Because I say it's autistic people do find that social struggle of no having a ability to know how to open up and who to open up to us saying then that can be really hard for autistic people. And, and dangerous. Yeah. We can end up trusting the wrong people. We end up becoming prey to predators who would yeah. listen to us, treat us right, and then hurt us. And we are so vulnerable. We are so vulnerable yes. in every single way. We really are. And and it hurts my heart. But we have to admit it because we can't bring strength. We can't build strength around a vulnerability if we don't admit it. Yeah? Yes. We can't build strength around the fact that we're vulnerable to manipulation, to coercion, to grooming. And it's like, well, why are we vulnerable? Because we're quite trusting. They call it being literal in the diagnostic criteria. I call it being quite trusting. We want to see the good in people. We won't want to think that they would do the opposite of what they said. Yeah? Yeah, and as I say, it's like labels of trust and loyalty. Uh, you know, so it'd be like the, the words and like, are we, you know, like positively seen as you're saying, you know, like we've seen so negatively and I guess you went on finding pride and being autistic and taking back over our control and power of, over ourselves and the com communal sense of autonomy for autistic people. It's about seeing the words in a positive language and as say for us not to be manipulated. So like, see us like, the vulnerability is not our problem, but the problem of somebody else, as you say. It's like we're not the ones who are susceptible, you know, like susceptible to be manipulated, we're the ones who get manipulated. And as you're saying about the power structure, it's important for us to have people who are in charge of like, like mental health services, you know, NHS, you know, like, or, you know, both in like government and, you know, like parliament you know always powers to like be the ones who can break the laws you know like in charge of the health services to actually design and create create things in a societal level that like it has power between what's normally the holistic power to be able to develop things for the wider community that gets us to equality and equity well that's it and, and what you said then was really key about how so we, they will often blame the autistic for being um, gullible, um, literal, yeah? Instead of looking at the person who chose to abuse. Because that's where the blame lies. It doesn't lie with an autistic person not being able to read social cues. It lies at the responsibility of the perpetrator who chose to target that person. And they chose to take advantage of their differences. And there's so much victim blaming upon autistic people and upon disabled people. Society would rather find a way to blame 
the person in need than the person who actually took advantage of the need. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I see that cycle of self-blame a lot, but it is not, it's not our issue. It's not our fault when travesties have happened to us, but too often, even within a legal system, a legal system with judges and prosecutors, it will use our autism diagnosis to not look at the crime that's been committed, but to say, oh, we don't have the capacity, they're fine. So these are serious crimes that have taken place. So abuse, um, violence, assault, and they are traumatising to autistic people. But when people see the autism label, it's like the crime that's been committed or the trauma that's happened doesn't need to be addressed because we're already suffering. We're already suffering. We're already, we are the suffered. So it's like, there's very little protection and I, I just don't understand it I don't yeah. it's, it's inequality it's just it has to be discrimination when you're treated differently for the exact same crime yet you're not listened to because your autism diagnosis means you have a different perspective on the world that means we're failing we're failing autistics everywhere right off the start like how are they how how is an autistic person supposed to be able to feel confident with asking for help to get out of a dangerous situation if they're not going to be believed because of the autism diagnosis it doesn't make sense to me and it that that led me to have my own little nervous breakdown if i'm honest with you because i was just like i, I don't have any hope I don't have any hope. This makes no sense. And then my head, my head, I had a breakdown. Yeah. I had a breakdown. Um, because I, I kind of felt like everything I was fighting for, there was no point. But that's not true. That's that's chronic depression. Yeah. It's chronic depression. And it's taken yeah. years to get over that, that depressive state. But to have my autism diagnosis weaponized against me so bad when i was a victim that was a shattering a, sh a life shattering few years for me um that they wouldn't they wouldn't believe what I, I i was saying they thought that i'd misinterpreted the abuse because of they'd go back to the points in the autism and they'd say, you see things differently. You've got a different world perspective. I'm like, I'm telling you what happened and you you keep coming back to the diagnosis instead of the crime. So I felt like I was in a different world. I, I didn't feel like any of this was real. And it, it made me really wish I did not have the autism diagnosis because I did wonder if I didn't have that label, would they have believed me? And, and, and I, I do remember saying this, though, to the police. I said to the police, you have made being autistic, you've made that an open season for abusers because abusers can abuse autistic people and know that there's a loophole within our law, which means that the police are very less likely to believe an autistic victim, let alone make adaptations to collect their statement. 
it's scary. When we scrape away at the surface, we do not have any legal protection, none. And it is what I want to fight. Before I die, I want to fight knowing that we have some legal protection in place, where it is a legal obligation of the police force to get autism or disability experts in to help retrieve the statement. Because you've been in a meltdown state, Aaron. What are you going to be like, right, if you've just been the victim of a crime? You're going to be in a huge meltdown. That, to the police, is not okay. Yeah. You're not allowed to be in a meltdown when you're a victim. You're not. Even though we know that's it makes sense yeah. to respond that way, you can't be like that. You can't be crying. You can't be rocking. You can't do any of that because it's seen as, oh, there's something else here. Let's explore the mental illness instead of what actually happened. And that's what happened. They looked at my, my head instead of what happened to me. And it, to this day, I don't understand it. And I guess it's that sad thing that that's how people, autistic people, don't feel like we are, you know, able to trust, you know, like authority and there you go. Listen, just the systems, because as I say, and like for anybody who's like, as I say, who's less, you know, is labelled as more in uh, low functioning, not labelled like that by society or. Or like you know, whether like a certain you know other disabilities or and difficulties, then that that can be seen as like a hard issue to get the support and be able to uh, you know communicate in the things in a way that actually gets them that justice or be able to get the resources to get in some like some sort of resolution and the result is on outcomes they need. And as I say, and with like issues like uh, you were saying about legal aid and legal support, as you say, reviews throughout the years, you've seen like legal aid stripped down on that. And I hope you do are able for your activism and your work to uh, make these change, see these changes happen. That's it, because currently, currently as we speak in the UK, um, there are at least two autism um barristers or solicitors so you know the legal the professionals yes there's two in the whole of the uk who can represent an autistic person in court with the knowledge of being autism friendly that's despicable and, and for me it it shocks me when authorities come to me and say why do the autistic community not trust in institutions or in powers or authority we we don't trust because of that huge neglect the neglect the the subjugation the the possibility of being sectioned for being in trauma no wonder we don't trust and these institutions have often been the ones that have caused us harm so of course we don't trust and i think it's a totally normal normal behavior for autistics to withdraw trust from those institutes i think it's normal i don't think there's any anything abnormal in that at all but yet yeah. still try to see it as an abnormality they've tried to frame it as an abnormality 
when actually it can be completely explained historically. Um, yeah. It's an avoidance because of survival. We don't trust them because we don't know if they have our best interest in at heart. So why would we go to that institute for help when that institute could actually throw the law or the book at us? Um, and I know that a lot of people would say, well, why do we have to make adaptations? Why do we have to make adaptations with healthcare and law? They do, because they're the ones who segregated us. Back in the 1940s, they segregated people, categorized them. These ones are autistic, these ones are normal. These ones are autistic, these ones are normal. They created this. We did not create this. We never asked for this, but we have it, and we're trying to make the best with what we can. But they created this system, and it is up to them to reharmonize that balance. As you say, it's like without the, as you say, without the uh, comedies and there's the justice, you know, because there would be no justice everywhere. And then, uh, as you're saying it, uh, you see many people who are, who are autistic who are of no, like, trust and faith in the police. And then, you, because, like, you then have, like, people who are non binary or trans in the community, like, I was saying, like, women, you know, LGBTQ. Uh, like people of colour, then you know those people in the community are then more susceptible for like, you know, like miscarriage of justice and all you know all these negativities. And I was saying it's this is a desperate issue and this is something that needs to be like immediate focus of like what what changes we get for and what must be done. Thank for disabled thank, people. Thank you so much for saying that because I, I worry that I'm too negative and um but I don't I can't sweep it underneath the carpet and I wish I could articulate it better and less emotionally, but I appreciate you saying that it's valid to talk yeah. about. Well, you know, like this is you know, you was seven year old experience and Thing is, like, you, you know, like, you can't not be like mostly invested in it because this is your experience and this is something you really determined to want. This is something I cannot be swept under the rug or be forgotten about because it's been so many years forgotten about. And you know, like, as I say, this is a desperate situation where, like, it's like a survival thing and it's one of those things that. For many or disabled people, it's something that you can't wait another minute for not, you know, seeing this change. So, like, it, I understand it's something that should be at the top of the list and it's something urgent that needs to be done. It really is. I mean, like, just this morning I got a message from a parent who, she took her two-year-old, so we're talking about a baby here, a toddler, Yeah. She took her two-year-old to A and E. Yeah, he has a, a a very nasty chest infection, and this was at the hospital. The staff called security on a two-year-old for having a meltdown. So let me just say that again: adult nursing staff called security on a two-year-old baby, child, toddler for having a meltdown. Instead, 
of applying the guidelines because the guidelines they don't have to do it but instead of applying yeah. the guidelines so this is the thing they are scared of us they are scared of us they are terrified of our difference and that is why we are so heavily penalized for it because they're, they are they're scared by the flapping they're scared by the humming they're scared by the screaming they're scared by the head banging they're scared of all of it because they see it as a loss of control and it is in that moment a loss of emotional control but they fear it so much that they punish it instead of treating it with compassion and humanity which is funnily the thing that will cause the meltdown to subdue yeah. um so they feared a two-year-old toddler having a meltdown so they called security that for me is that we internalize that fear we internalize then that we're the bad thing we must be the problem we must be the disruptor and I, I think the way to, to move forward with this, and one of the things I'm trying to look at and teach is autistic distress. So autistic distress. Yeah. And how does that present? And what does it mean? And it means that that autistic person is genuinely hurting. They're in pain. They're in psychological and emotional or sensory pain. And that's what all of this is. But that's nothing to be afraid of. The person who's afraid right now is the person in the crisis yeah. at the centre of it. And I really hope that we can continue to consult with NHS trusts. Um, and my NHS trust has just released guidance, it's brand new, on how to respond to an autistic person in distress or in crisis. And it's with compassion, it's not with seclusion, it's not with sedation, it's not with intimidation or threat of violence. It's with compassion, space, empathy, adaptation. These things can be done. They can be done. Yeah. And I'm hoping these guidelines one day will become law. Yeah, as you're saying, it's, it's the simplest thing and the smallest thing you can do is just simply listen and give people a, autistic people a time and space they need and if, to be able to you know get out of their own distress you know because this is as i say and it's given us the space and time the, the space to listen to us and you know focus on what we need in that moment because as from my own experience like like a sit down or meltdown type thing is like an anxiety attack and because like I was first diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and like it's only from my own research that I started understanding how autism affects me because if you go and through like school yourself even with a diagnosis you know you might feel like you you know like could be like one of the only people in class so like unable to know how to uh, you know say you're autistic because you know not feeling internalized ableism because you don't really talk about in school or like just have that conversation and it's like then if I did maybe would understand it early on about my autism then and it, it as I say is fear, anxiety, sometimes you know like can be so excitement overwhelmed with emotion because the meltdown is based on that emotion and as you say it's nothing to be feared of and 
So it's that important thing that we need to converse. And you've you seen about the nurses in the uh, hospital. It's, it's one of the first places you should have support there for autistic people because that's like the first like a point of care where mm. you need that support because that's their job to care. And you should be able to have the resources and the information and the training to care for other people. That's it. That's the way to fight this resources, training, and essentially it's a, it's a political issue. The medical issue becomes a legal issue, becomes a political issue. It's a societal problem. And, and one that I find quite, if we come back to how the observer of psychiatry looked at our autisticness and they said, we don't have empathy. The situation with the two-year-old in hospital that shows relative to us it's them who don't have empathy to us and i don't understand how they cannot be humanly towards people in crisis and i really think that if we help autistic people in this area it will help so many other people who are not autistic but who are suffering with mental health crises or depression or trauma if you make needs, access needs for us, you will help the wider population and society because there is a lack of empathy towards human suffering. And I feel like autistic people are some of the bloody bravest people I know in that they show and they bear their soul only for it to be punished. But I honestly believe that that bearing of their soul is vital for humankind. And I do think that other people, other neuro kindred, they will benefit from being able to admit, I'm overloaded, um, I've reached my limit, um, this is uncomfortable for me, yeah? Because those yeah. things are seen as weak in modern day society. Admitting your problems is seen as weak, but we know it's a strength. We know it's a strength. But I, I, I honestly do believe that the things that we're asking for help for helping autistics in crisis, it will help so many neurotypical people too. So it just makes uh, sense to, to do this. You know, we're not asking for specialised treatment. We're asking for humane treatment. Yeah, as you were saying earlier on, you know, about how, like, we intervented on spirit, different things. But, like, no, it's, like, being able to look, look at and how we can, like, uh, use the autistic and the more divergent lens of the world and how we like see our emotions and empathize what in terms of well-being and support we need and how that can apply to other people in need and support as I say we can be experiencing burnout sit downs and all that so like as saying for many of us the support of having sometimes not expected to go into a like work work all the time you know have like days where we can take time off our, our mental health support and being able to have like time where we now expected to go socialize and all the time and do things on our terms and our autonomy and so like we've all all what we want for ourselves is to have that autonomy and that can do with people people to know in their favor to support their own well-being that's it a hundred percent like i really do believe that 
us being more open about these issues and asking for help in these areas will help other people. But the autonomy is so important because we're, we're stripped of consent. We're stripped of being offered the opportunity to make decisions about what's best for us because ultimately we've been deemed as incapable. We, we are neurologically different. We, as it stands today, we are neurologically deficit. As it stands today, we are a neurological disease. That is what we're fighting against. We're fighting against that pathologization of humankind. We're not a disease. Like, how on earth did anyone think that? But homosexuals, they used to believe that they were a disease because it was taught to them. It was told to them. You're not normal. You're not normal. And it's like, okay, then I mustn't be. And it's like, what is normal? <laughs> like, let's just take a step back. What is normal? And and this persecution of people, it's not okay. We're people. We're humans. And we want what everyone else has, and that's acceptance. And But we're not accepted. We're fundamentally, we are not accepted. And we're fighting for that. We're fighting to be recognised as a normal variant of humanity. Yeah, and as you say, like about homosexuality, it's only recently that we were able to find the rights on in our own country a lot because it's only been, like, I think, 10 years since they legalised, uh, you know, seems sex marriage and marriage equality in that area. And as you say, not, you know, with the mental health stuff, you know, there's a narrative about it's okay not to not be okay, but it's like we can almost flip the narrative if you're giving people their own control and over like their own autonomy. Because as you're saying, if you're in survival mode, to like be able to say it's okay not to be okay, but you can have the tools to make it be okay and be, as you're saying, you know, like with injustices and, you know, with healthcare not designed for us workplaces, having that ability to have the power to change things like that, I think would uh, make things okay. So, and one thing that I wanted to also talk to you about is, you know, if you, like when you're like, what helps you like with yourself being okay, you know, what, what type of things has helped you like with like sensory wise stimming to calm down and things of self care that you you have done to, you know, support your own well being. So what I've learned and it's something that I'm trying to teach to autistics, our stimming helps us. It helps us regulate, it helps us to cognitively soothe the storm of thoughts which are cycling around constantly. It helps us to navigate our mind and it helps us to collect calm. But that stimming, again, is being said is abnormal. I've had people describe me as frightening because of the way I move and talk. And I'm, I'm trying to get them to encourage them to understand that moving in this way is not abnormal. It's socially, social construct, it's abnormal to rock and sway and hum. But from a human, biological, animal sense, it's completely normal. And I think it's so sad that we've been stripped away from our coping mechanisms. So um, 
some of my stimming can be harmful and my challenge has been to displace the stim into into stims which don't hurt me but I will always bite at my fingers I can't help it it's just it's always there yeah I'll always bite 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 but then the challenge for me is when I'm biting too much it's to try and displace it so one of the stims that I taught myself when I had my nervous breakdown and I couldn't work and I couldn't think I couldn't I couldn't even wash I couldn't even feed myself right and it, it lasted for months so then all I could do some days is come downstairs, watch TV and crochet. But that's enough. That's enough for me. Let me just see if I can show you it. One second. So this is a stim. It's the same thing again and again. It's like a bit of thread. And you just do it again and again and again. The same movement again and again and again and again and again. Oh, that's a stim. And it's relaxing, but it's also productive. So what they've taught us about ourselves is a load of shit. It really is. Excuse my language. It is. Because it's like this biting is a stim, but the crochet is a stim. They are both valid. They both have a function. They both aim to soothe, to self-soothe and to regulate and to calm down. Um, one of the stims that I've learned as an adult, which I love, is roller skating. And it's the best because... I can spin in one spot and you can like literally spin, 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 spin and spin. And as a little girl, I'd be spinning around all the time and flapping. But now I found a way, I found a way to do a stim, which is it protects me because people don't see it as a stim. They see it as a, what do they see it as? Exercise or a hobby. They see it as a hobby. And many of our stims are hobbies. Yeah. Like, that they're they're so wide reaching, but um, I I think autistic people are were blamed so much for those differences instead of encouraged to see where those differences could take us. Um, so if someone said to me, "Oh, you love spinning," instead of stop, why not find a roundabout? Why not do the roller skating? Find a way to channel the spin, yeah. Find a way to channel the spin. Um, but what's really helped me apart from stimming, it, it, it's going slow. I know this sounds a bit corny, but I've had to slow everything all the way down. Um, every day I make lists, even if it's four tasks or some days it's one task, some days it's 12 tasks, but I have to just balance it and I have to be kind to myself when I can't complete them all. Because there are some days I can't do any of my avoid. My avoidance will come in and I don't have a productive day. And those days are really hard because I'm like, oh, I'm rubbish. I'm not a productive member of society. Why can't I just work like everyone else? Yeah, it, it can get very heavy ahead. But it's about just trying to come back to that place of well, what is normal. And I'm doing my normal. I'm doing my bit. And... As long as I'm trying to look after myself, keep the house warm, feed myself, get myself clean, that's a win. If I've done those things, if I've fed myself, bathed myself and kept on top of the house, that is a win. And I've had to tell myself that every day that I'm winning, but really I'm surviving. It's, it's true, I'm surviving. But the point where I can start to share work again, that's where I start to live because I'm starting to 
utilize what I'm imagining and, and put it out there instead of just survival mode, but they're both valid. They're both valid modes. And I just, um, sorry, yeah, I just have to take it day by day, step by step. Um, and I hate it, I really do, because I just want to produce everything and get out there now, but I'll burn out. Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's that struggle about being autistic, is the burnout, because as you're saying, it sometimes can get in, in the way of things you went into, as you're saying that, you know, you've, you've got like loads of things you probably went to, but you know, like you just don't have the energy or like, you know, like the either physical or mental energy to it, and then that can kind of knock on yourself and you knock on like your confidence with it. And then, you know, like they, there are some days where you just need to try to take it slow and slow yourself down, as you say. Stimming to help that, and you know, like, if you just like stimming and you know, finding ways of like safely to it, can you know, as well, if you get to view on it, or you like, you know, like, so kind of working yourself up all, you know, like a bit depressed now, so it's just kind of just like kind of slow down your thoughts of it, you know. Well, that balance, like, oh, well, I was just saying, now, where can I, you know, like, stimming itself, can I, you know. You can like calm and kind of reduce the like and now you start going on in your brain just to can help you know kind of pray it and calm yourself down and keep yourself grounded in that sense. That's why it's internet. And I get frustrated because there's some weeks where all I've done is nervous system regulation and I've not done anything pro productivity wise, but I've learned that that's that's what I've unfortunately it's what I've needed to sustain myself but I think the things that I struggle with probably the most it's um being isolated I don't have I don't really have any friends I am always just on my own and that can again it, that can get very heavy on your head when you don't have the external community that so many autistic people crave we 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 crave for someone's advice someone's input what do you think of this you know outside of our own head and we deserve that we deserve to be able to connect with other people yeah i think what i was just going to say i think what can be hard for uh, autistic people and autistic people like myself is like you know like it's very rare you find the community or the autistic neurodivergent community in real life and you can find it often online and sometimes you want to uh, in real life connects and all like you know to you know have some of face to face experience of it and that's the same with, with it so i think for myself between the pandemic that was a kind of big knock on like i really ended up being less productive and you know that, that can in itself make myself feel quite only on fingers it was like the adjustment of you know like when i tried university from like going to sixth form and you know that I felt it didn't work because like it's so many changes at once and like I find if like it's only one change at a time you know like it could be more controllable and the thing is it, it's that thing with like as I was saying earlier about autonomy like sometimes we need to be able to slow down as individuals as autistic people and it can be quite hard and frustrating if you can't 
only just do it when thing at a time because that's that's it and that's what i feel like i'm in at the moment and i feel like there's so much good awareness around stimming and things like that yeah. but i still don't feel that autistic people have had a conversation about cognitive navigation so by that i mean okay so aaron do you ever wake up and or in the day and you, you're flooded with literally about 50 different thoughts and you don't know which one to prioritize and you can get lost i can get lost in my head for hours i don't know about you but i can um and what i'm trying to say is that can be a scary place when you don't know how to navigate it yeah so yeah there are definitely times like i would say sometimes i wouldn't say how often it is but i know there's definitely like times when it can be like that especially if like got like a lot of change or like somehow like in like being more busy than usual and like like all like as i say big change that just going on like as i said with china university i'm then like that was the change of having multiple things going on like you know new environment new people you know like starting out support getting used to all different things then i think that's for myself when in a busier place and all that that's where I was being a bit like that. Yeah, that's overload then that you describe. Yeah. And and often I can get I can get that overload from myself. Yeah. So I can be in this house in my on my own and all of a sudden I will get that cognitive overload from myself, from from thinking of memories, of future plans, of things I need to do. And before I know it, I'm lost in this cognitive soup. And one of the things that I'd really like to do going forward is autistic education for autistic people, which is educating us about our stims, educating us about the way we think and the depths of which we can end up thinking and how to pull ourselves back out. I want to educate ourselves on, basically, I just want to get the diagnostic criteria and for each nasty point they've put, I just want to rehumanise it. And I've seen so many wonderful autistic advocates doing this anyway, adding humanity back in. But the thing that's helped me is, is my mum has that. My mum has the washing machine. Oh, I do the washing machine. Yeah. 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 All right, just do you mind if I just quickly get for across to the kitchen and get chocolate water on me a quick second? Yeah, good. Yeah, so as you were saying about uh, like you know, lessons when they be able to help uh, autistic people with. Yeah, and it, it's just so that because when you're on your own all the time, you can end up listening to the very negative, intrusive thoughts that pop up. And I think the biggest conundrum that I have faced over the last two years is I've wished, um, and I'm so sorry, but I'm going to admit it, um, I wished with all my heart that I was not autistic. And that's not me. If people saw the work that I did, for me to all of a sudden wish that I wasn't autistic, it was because I went after what I went through was so bad, after the police didn't want to listen to me because of the autism diagnosis, after having like no friends because of how I behave and my interests are too intense, 
it made me just really go back to that horrible place, which was, I just wish I wasn't autistic. I wish that I could have a lobotomy and all these awful thoughts. And that's when people like, oh, the biggest killer of autistic people is suicide. I can believe it. We're, we're made to not like ourselves because we don't have any clear pathways of support. So of course we're gonna end up wanting to eradicate ourselves because we don't have support for it. And that's what I really believe that education will help and offer because I don't want my son to ever, ever, ever experience what I've gone through the last two years of wishing he wasn't who he was, you know? And it's like, yeah. but I can say that me wishing I wasn't autistic that comes from a place of severe harm that comes from being harmed because of that difference and that's when i was like yeah. oh if i didn't have this i'd be okay and it's like well, i don't know that but there are days where i wish i didn't have the overload i wish i wish i wasn't overloaded i wish i didn't shut down they're not pleasant states to be in they're awful yeah. they're awful but then there's other days where i'm so grateful that my mind can run a thousand miles an hour because I'm generating ideas and I'm writing workshops and I'm doing planning. So you can't pick and choose the parts of autism that you love and you don't love. And it's been my job to look at, if I don't love myself for that, why? And it's because shutdown's not productive. Having your mind running at a thousand miles an hour is productive. So it comes back to the notion of capitalism and many autistics feel that they are a burden because we don't capitally produce towards society. It's a myth. Capitalism is a myth. It's a function. It's very real, but it's not ornate. It's not biological. It's a man-made construct, capitalism. Yeah. And we feel the repercussions of it all the time. We feel it when we live in poverty. We feel it when we can't pay for our bills. We feel it when we can't hold our own job. But we end up internalising that we're the issue because we can't compete with a man-made construct. And I need to settle with that because that helps me every time where the ideation pops up where, oh, I wish I wasn't this way. I have to really ground into... So, sorry, I was just... I was saying that um, the landscape has changed so much and that really gives me hope because the more visibility we have, the less, the less the powers that be will be able to abuse their position of power because they will know better soon. Not just yet, but they will. They'll have no excuse for their treatment of us when they know there are better ways. Because we as a community yeah. have been educating them for free. We're doing free labour here. And that's another thing. Autistic neurodivergent people, we are doing free labour. When living yeah. in poverty, when suffering ourselves. And I honestly think the next movement for us is to demand that our labour is recognised as that, as work. And how dare we have moments where we think we're not productive towards society when they're using what we produce they're utilizing what we produce but not paying us for it not they can't bring themselves to give us that recognition that's the next step is we are valued we have value we have worth and they need to treat us with that 
but it's discrimination yet again if they can get free work out of us they will and they have and i really hope that advocates can somehow form a collective where we get to demand that we're paid so like say if um an nhs trust wants to work with you aaron they'll probably want to, they'll want to do it for nothing they'll try and get your labor for free but that's a government branch that's our health institute they should pay us for that labor um so yeah so there are good things it's still push and pull but we're getting there Bella, i think thanks for saying that because you know, autistic people will find that, you know, they've been in a similar experience themselves because, you know, like, as we've been saying, we've, like, systems not designed for us of having that, you know, like, kind of trauma passed on to us from, as we've been saying, like, we, 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 like, can experience abuse, ableism, you know, like, bullying, stuff like that, but that's been for school, uh, you know, like, college, for to, like, you know, experience with like health and police to whatever like justice systems and that and it's all that uh, amalgamation of stuff within society that you know to, is negatively affecting us. And then you know, when we see like stuff like as we've seen them, like services being cut down, you know, health services, not as many like people are there to support us because like certain financial cuts, then you know, then it can make make us feel negative in the sense of, you know, we feel like the, there's not much being changed being made at the minute. That's it. And it's nice to connect and everything, but it wouldn't it be great if you could have a living wage to reflect your work? And this is what I mean by we're dehumanised a lot to the point where we don't even recognise sometimes when we're producing something of value. And and we'll 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 get there. I just don't know how. <laughs> um, but I I'm always facing it where people with the money, so organisations with the capital, then we'll try and get the labour for free. And I do think that's extortionate. It's extortion. It's extortionating a community that's already vulnerable. And that's why I'm keeping my eye on some of these things that are developing. Because I want to see, do they treat us with the equality that we need? And equality in this day and age, it is a wage. It is an income. It is recognition. That's equality. It's not taking someone's work and then going, oh, you should be grateful that we listen to you. It's like, no, they should be grateful, Aaron, that you've done this podcast. They should be grateful that they're autistic advocates producing information on their behalf. So we'll get there. It'll take a while. Yeah, as you're saying, you know, it's it's a crowd person being because you know, like you go mind yourself, it's you know, like not responsible for these things. But as saying, it's like without the change for many people, it's like you know, like how to you know, like survive. Then, as you've been saying, that's it. And um. As long as we're not paid for our labour, so as long as we're producing free labour, they rob us of our autonomy because financial support is autonomy. That's a pathway to living an autonomous life. So if we're talking about autonomy, pay is so important. I honestly believe that every advocate who is positioned to work with an organisation 
should be offered payment immediately. But that's not what's happening. And I'd be very interested to try and speak to advocates about their experience of doing labour, but with no pay and having a conversation on how that does rob us of our autonomy and it keeps us in a class system. It keeps us near the poverty line. It's all it's all about trying to keep the powers that be in their place and us in our place. And even if we are making an advance, we still can't make the advance that we need in modern day civilization. So it's valuing disabled people, valuing our work, valuing our worth, pay us for our job. And I, I honestly, I really hope to see more advocates speaking about that in the future. I would say no one person has the answer, as we've been saying, it's not like one single answer ourselves at all. Because uh, as we've been saying, it's changes that can support for autistic people to give them the autonomy and start making these changes and start progressing things and moving things forward. And it's the simple act of progressing and moving things forward that you start seeing an answer, a solution. It's scary. It's scary. This cost of living crisis will kill people. It will kill disabled people, our most vulnerable, because without heating, you are far more likely to contract pneumonia. Your body and your brain function is compromised at only 10 degrees. These are scientific studies. So we know that cold homes kill. And if you're vulnerable already from a dis disability predisposition, that poverty may kill you. So this is why it is an absolute issue that we need to be talking about. We need to be able to finance lives, which is heating, food, water, electricity. Without it, I don't want to think what could happen. But... Progress. And I think if you like having to play ball to like a neurotypical ruling, I think that has something to do with that. Yeah. So when they, when they don't pay us, they they keep us in our place and they ultimately contribute towards our harm. Yeah, do, yeah definitely do have more hope about it because, you know, like, as you're saying, you know, like, you need to be, you know, like, more visible and speaking loud about it to actually make action happen. And as you've been, you know, like, throughout many years, the activism and, you know, working as community advocating, you've done my, quite a lot of work, you know, in this field, trying to make people more aware of autistic people and acceptance and, you know, like, actually trying to see actions and changes made and, like, as by, by doing this podcast, it's trying to make, the you know, the voice heard. And it's like, when I was chatting to uh, Victoria Ellen, actually, Aspling, as you may have seen on social media, we were talking about how, like, she, like, she can see, like, Ben's research in a diagnostic criteria of autism and like she said like so i would you could change and adapt the you know the rules in that to diagnose people and how it shouldn't be gender specific so we can see then we got the ideas to make a change so and i think we do have that hope okay so this is a good issue actually to go on from the cold my ellis danlos syndrome it becomes disabling in the colder months the pain that I feel I feel like I've been smashed all over my legs that's why I look a bit ill today because I'm, I'm actually struggling with my condition 
Um, and in the colder months, it really hurts my bones, it inflames tissue. And that's where I looked at the scientific journals of how cold does affect our bodies and our brains and our nervous system. And those with underlying conditions are more likely to experience um, huge collapses in their health, huge regressions in their health, or are at risk of a fatality. So this is a, it is an issue for the disabled community, the, 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 cold, the cold winters and, and cost of living. Um, but in the warmer months, I'm able to manage my condition a lot better. Um, I used to be in a wheelchair because of it. And this is the thing with Ellis Danloff. I've had Ellis Danloff my whole life. Uh, again, I didn't know. I only found out when I was 30 that I was hypermobile and I have a collagen disorder. So Ellis Danloff, it, it's, my collagen is too loose. It's too stretchy. So I can literally pull all my skin like a blanket and my tendons, they stretch like that as well. So all my joints are double jointed. They're too flexible. It means a hip can come out of place. It means my shoulder comes out of place. But I'm able to manage that now because I've spent four years of physiotherapy, which felt like torture at first. It really did. At first, it was very small rehabilitative physio. And now I've gotten to the place where I'm finally at the gym. I do yoga. I do roller skating. But there's days where I can't do any activity, but I need to, I, I have to balance it. I cannot lose the muscle I've gained. If I lose the muscle that I've gained, I will, I will dislocate everywhere again. Um, so the stronger my body is and the more muscle I've got for my tendons to stretch over, the better for me. But um, Ellis Danlos, it affects my joints, is the most obvious for people to see. But it affects my nervous system, affects my digestion. It, it chronically affects my fatigue, my fatigue levels. Um, and I, I, I do dislike it. i got to say, I really, I dislike being in bed in pain. I dislike being bed bound. I dislike, I dislike having a disability because of the suffering it causes me. And because of the, because no one understands it. So I just now keep it to myself with the Ellis Danlos. I don't even bother trying to explain it to people because they, they end up treating me a bit differently. So if I can hide it, I will. Um, but Ellis Danlos is a condition that you can completely degenerate under. And that's what happened to me. I, I degenerated, I collapsed. Um, I had no muscle, I, I couldn't, I had no core strength, I couldn't even stand upright without a crutch, um, and I, I feel fortunate to have rehabilitated myself, but I do wonder what would my life be like if I was still reliant on the chair and on the crutch, and if I can answer that, my life would be very difficult because of how people treat you when you're disabled, so I'm still Sarah doesn't matter if I'm in the chair or not in the chair I'm sorry but people will treat me so differently for being visibly dis disabled and it's just so weird so weird so much hatred I got so much hate for being a wheelchair user and I got so much hate for having to have physio for having the disability um but I do feel grateful 
that I was able to communicate with the nurses when I was being diagnosed. Because at first, they, they try and say it's a mental illness. <laughs> at first, they say that your pain is a mental illness until your joints are falling out of place and then they can't deny it anymore. So that's uh, medical gaslighting and that's quite traumatic to think that your pain is in your head when it's not, when it's a collagen disorder, when it affects everything, it affects my heart, my stomach, the way I digest. So it's, it, it that was, that was very traumatic being made to believe I was just making it up again. That's constantly what I kind of face is that I'm making things up. And I did get a lot of vindication in the diagnosis, but um, in that I finally had a framework to understand myself within with the Ellis Danlos. Um, but yeah, Ellis Danlos syndrome is something that is huge within the autistic community, and I don't know why. I don't know why. They've not done much research about the link, but I, I had a theory that so we're hypermobile, there's a lot of plasticity in in our collagen so our brain is made up of collagen therefore it would affect the brain functioning oh uh, yeah i thought it would be like a potent one to touch upon because you know we're lots of people who are autistic to have the condition and i think this when i was conditioned with more in the more mainstream population it's not really known and talking about and like so far it would be quite interesting to delve on in and touch upon it and how it can affect yourself and you know it's when I was disabilities that you know it's not it won't affect you the same always you know in in a different way if you know what I mean because you know you said from one time you were like physically disabled with like okay looked physically disabled with it to person and you know like it could be like able pass and like yeah so there's that there so I thought I'm now able passing again. I, I it's now gone back to invisible disability because I don't use any mobility aids, but the condition's still here. Like my my shoulder still dislocates and the hip. I can't ride a bike because cycling causes my hip to come out. So cycling is not allowed at all because the hip dislocating yeah. is not good. But it has returned to that invisible disability, but it's still a very limited. Yeah, because one. it would still have the pain and you know the the days where like you might be more you know like able to go to the gym and that and i guess some days you still have the pain and you probably like body's not like needing to be more of a rest day rather than all the intense physical activity so it's like and that's what the mind's like the mind needs yeah. that too and it needs that activity and respite activity and respite activity and respite yeah. um and but my main concern is that autistics are known to have hypermobility. That's a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain that's not being recognised yeah. and that's being told us in people's heads. So yet again, the autistic community are being punished for being in pain. We're being punished when we're in sensory or psychological pain. We're being punished when we're in physical pain. We're being told that our pain is a manifestation of our mind that's gaslighting yeah. and dangerous because we then have no autonomy over our own body 
over our own disability and how to self-care because we're being told it's not real. And that's what this community, the autistics have suffered needlessly is systemic medical gaslighting at every turn, at every turn, without them ever looking at the root causes. Yeah, as you're saying, they're very like, like to autistic people, we have like just often described as different pain intolerances and different pains, like sensitivities. Then, as you say, internet, you know, there's often and often a, like a interest for people to understand what that defense and to, defense intoleration is. And yeah, uh, and like I do find like a, I think find like a, you know like. I uh, do have like knees that can move out to place and like like hypermobile like funds and stuff like that. So like I know like I got like some hypermobile funds, but it's like apart from that, I'm not not sure more on it. But it's like uh, fascinating to learn a bit more because like on how autistic people experience that, you know. Well, that's it. Well, it, it's a hypermobility is a spectrum within itself. Yeah. So there'll be varying degrees, and it can change yeah. a person's life. So, did you say your knees? Yeah, my knees. Yeah. yeah, my knees. So, that's it. And it's that physical pain. So, it, it, I get genuinely upset when I think about the autistic people who are carrying that pain and who are punished for trying to access help or, or are not believed for being in that pain, that that really worries me because that's suffering. That's just suffering. And some acknowledgement can go a long way. Acknowledgement can go a long, long way, which is you do have this condition. Here's how we can manage it. But we can't manage it if we don't know we have it. But it's about autistic health care. Yeah, definitely about autistic health care. Well, it's like a thing for, for me, like, like sometimes, you know, it can also be like either like injured but not noticed the like we're in pain with it because like I remember before like when he was in school like yeah like springed my uh, uncle and like for like for a few hours I thought now I'll be alright but lunchtime he only realised how it must have been in a quite a bit of pain with it because of felt like with the pain it was going to something or like so I've seen a bit red but it's like certain things like that I find less in my less sensitive to pain. So I think the autistic experience of pain really differs. Mm. That's it. But sometimes we become less sensitive to pain because we've had we've had to disassociate from it in order to carry it. But the pain is still there. Yeah. So we become hypo or hypersensitive to pain and we don't have any control of whether it's going to be hypersensitive or hypo today, but the pain is there. And we are consciously sometimes having to shut ourselves down from our own body to manage that pain. And, and that's that's disassociation. That, that, that produces mental health comple complexities being in pain all the time. But absolutely... Um, it, it's remarkable to me what pain I can take and what pain I can't. Yeah. So I, I broke my knee. I broke my knee doing roller skating. And it was really awful pain. It was up there with the most one of the most painful physical experiences I had. However, I was so scared 
of NHS professionals and the police and anyone in authority that I did not take myself to hospital and I had to um, self-heal a broken knee. And then I, eventually I went to my doctors and they were like, you fractured your knee, the bone is now up here. And they were like, why did you not come immediately? We needed to do, we needed to operate this immediately. And I was like, because I don't, I was worried that you'd say it was in my head. They're like, yeah, but it's a broken knee. I'm like, yeah, but I'm, I was worried you would tell me that I've not broken my knee and it's all in my head and I just need to go away. So I looked after it myself and they were like, they, I could see they looked sorry. They felt, I could see they looked a bit bad. They were like, you've broken your knee. How can you not know if you're in pain or not? And that's because I've been gaslit so bad throughout my whole life I, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. That's what yeah. gaslighting does. It makes you not know. It makes you have no autonomy over your own body. So for, to me, to have autonomy that day, for me to have autonomy would be for me to take myself to A&E with the broken knee and ask for help. And for me to have faith that my knee would be treated like any other human. But because I'm autistic, there is that risk that when I get there, they could tell me it's not a broken knee. If it was a broken knee, I wouldn't be able to talk. I wouldn't be able to breathe. Yeah. No. I was worried that they would do that. All of that making me doubt my own self, making me doubt my own mind and body again. Um, but yeah, I carried the broken knee and I had to dissociate from the pain, which was I, I for, for days I would separate my my mind from my body and that's not a functional state state i'm not productive in that state i'm literally watching movies eating junk food yeah, yeah. for about two weeks and i'm dissociating I, i'm in in my head out my head i don't know whether i'm coming or going because i'm trying to deal with the pain that's not really that painful but it is because it's a broken knee so our pain messages they get completely rewired and and misinterpreted but I believe that's because of external influence. An external experience may have um, may have contributed towards that. May have. Yeah, as you were saying, it's like that uh, negative experience kind of gives you that feeling that maybe going into like a doctor's room and you're into like an A&E department, left to that place, not knowing what type of quality of health care and support you're going to get that day because you could be addressed with like a lovely person and one of the most kindest people or you could be addressed with like somebody who's quite robust sap perhaps who's ready to listen to you and you you don't know they can't be you know like wanting if you're in pain to or like injured to like deal with that and face that uncertainty of not knowing what uh, type of health service you're going to get. That's it. And like, I, and we are hypo and hypersensitive. We are quite naturally that yeah. way. But I feel like we tap into those systems more to cope with pain because we don't have any clear pathways to access yeah. help for it. So then we, got, we, we then get stuck in a very dysregulated nervous system then because environmentally we're not helped to soothe 
a pain pathway, whether it's a broken knee, whether it's a mental health issue, whether it's PTSD, if we're not helped to soothe the pain source, we will remain in a dysregulated, not a dysfunctional, a dysregulated nervous system that's flittering from one point to the other to try and get some balance when actually the balance it needs is external help. And that, that's one thing I'd really love to focus on one day is about asking for external mm -hmm. help. How on earth do we empower autistic people to ask for help when we know, when we know the experience of that? How can I, in all good consciousness, advise autistic people to go to the police if there's a crime, to go to the hospital if they're not well? How can I advise them to go down those pathways if I know they could be at risk of further harm for accessing help? I can't in good consciousness do that. And then I'm stuck. I'm stuck in a bind of my own activism then which is I know what they need to do, but I can't do it because this world is not set up for that. Yeah, so like I was just saying about the uh, chronic uh, the, the pain, because, you know, with uh, pain, as we discussed, you know, like, because we, like, can dissociate or not recognise the level of pain, then you're saying almost just, like, it can be linked to past trauma and element of thought, but it seems like to be potential between... Like in most of this regulation of Lex Fame, we unable to be that. They all seem to be like that reason with Lex Fame, with uh, pain itself and physical, and like kind of almost like that physical emotion of like if you body, if you're physically feeling, and because like mm -hmm. things like emotion you feel in a way, like, and like for actual physical things and all that, and then it's like how your mind reads some of your emotions. And I guess that messes the nervous system up because I guess you know nervous system is when that travels painful. So it's after the neurology then I think. So it is. It's it's that not knowing. It's not knowing what pain needs to be acted on and what pain is normal because and, and it can lead to some real issues. Like so, say you may have an underlying health condition or you may need to just be checked out, but we won't do so because of that fear but pain carrying pain around all the time is exhausting it, it, it depletes us it depletes us and then we crash and shut down and burn out whether it's emotional or psych i've had both i've had both physical and psychological pain i can't tell you which is worse they're both bad in their own way <laughs> um but that pain exhausts us and this is another thing about you mentioned earlier about um yeah. mental activity so you know compared to physical activity like going to the gym and exercising and stuff spiraling around in your head thinking things through all the time burns energy yeah. neuroscientifically speaking it burns calories yeah so for autistics to feel lazy or unproductive the way that i have and tell myself for us to feel that it's not it's simply not true because if you sit for an hour ruminating going around in your thoughts you can burn as many calories as a workout session at the gym so there is real legitimacy in an autistic person saying i am cognitively overloaded i am emotionally overwhelmed this is too much for me that is legitimate it is legitimate because it is burning resources in our body 
and it's just not widely recognized within health practitioners but i really want autistics to know when they're going through those cognitive cycles and when they feel the collapse after that's genuine they've just basically been for a five mile run but in their head yeah and the thing is it it's important every time like that time to ourselves to like you know like like as you say earlier on there was some there's sometimes where you can mind be over running and you just need to relax and slow down and stem but also there needs to be that time where you like take take your own thoughts and like have like like a sort through your own brain and like go for what's going on in your life because if you're busy and like a lot going on in your plate and lots of many different things you haven't got that time to like step forward if you like you what motions you're feeling and how, how things have been for yourself recently and what you may need for yourself so i think this needs to be that you need to create that time sometimes yourself just to sit through yourself and a very steady not notice you in pain burnout and as you say like um emotional issues that's uh and and that's that's it and that's when that community is important because how are you supposed to figure any of that out all on your own because you're going to be yeah. in another cognitive cycle trying to sort it out all on your own you're not having any respite you're not having respite you're not having a break from thinking and that's when that externalization of asking for help whether it's in peer-to-peer -peer friend support professional support family support it's vital and so many of us are deprived we're, we're impoverished not only financially but socially and resource wise we are i feel like we're impoverished from experience because we're so busy being in the survival state that we don't really get the chance yeah. to fry to live not all the time but we don't get to that's for me, that's not my life. Most of my life is in survival. I'm, I'm hoping there'll be a day when it's not like that. And I do have faith it will come. Um, but that's not where I'm at at the moment. And it's just a very debilitating state to be in. It's exhausting. It's non-productive. But like you said, it's just sitting with that and giving yourself the time. But it becomes very isolating when you don't have a support network to do that in. So I think those are some of the big things going forward is individual care, individual education, but also collective community and support and the ability to ask for externalised help. Yeah, that's uh, needed on our saying it's let's take enough balance right for what you need for yourself then. And, you know, like trying to have, give yourself time to prioritise of your own needs and what, what you need to do to take stock and self-care and as you see you know like that respite you needed even though you've been in in survival mode you know you have needed this respite from like doing the work you need to do to actually like keep on surviving and like just like be able to work for young like tr trauma and start to heal and as you see you with survival mode you you do need that element of fakeness and you need to need to have that hope and like faith like that's some that is gonna be better days ahead of us you know you might you wouldn't be able to survive that so it's something that you need to, to be able to 
sustain yourself and keep going. Thank yeah. you. It does feel selfish, though. It feels selfish, and my therapist is always telling me it's not selfish to self-care. But I've said to her, I've had to self-care for years. It feels selfish. I want to live, and it's that's not a useful ideation. The whole selfish, and that's when it comes back to, oh, this is capitalism yeah. that's making me feel like I'm selfish and I'm a burden. That's why it's important to look at some of the bigger concepts which are grinding yeah. me down, which is this capitalist narrative, the rat race. I'm saying it's just, and I feel like being in that space for like, you know, like being in that phase and like your life, you know, you you can't switch off overnight and it does take you into work and you say that, you know, like you don't come, you know, like it takes a bit of therapy and it's like something you're working on and you, you'll get there, but it's like, you know, like, it's not sometimes, like, for your own good and your, your own survival, yeah, you need to be a bit, like, selfish or, like, take your own self-interest, whereas, you know, like, you know, like, otherwise you, you won't, wouldn't have you then, because, you know, like, for you to be you and keep on going on as yourself, you need to do what's in your needs, and that is important for anyone, really. Thank you. And it's weird because I don't believe other people are selfish for doing it, but I do when it comes to me. So this is what I mean about those weird mental health yeah. issues that many autistic people live with and have. Um, we're often very good at caring for other people and giving them advice, but I'm not good at applying yeah. that advice myself. And the last two years has been about applying that advice. <laughs> And living it, you know, really living it. I mean, like, um, but thank you. It's like that phrase, you know, like you, you are your own worst critic, critique, and you know, like sometimes, you know, like if you're spending all, spending, you know, time with yourself, sometimes, you know, like it's it all. Yeah, on it's my own. it's easy to like almost like beat yourself up if you, you know, but you, it's just like takes your time just to like. You know, relax and ground yourself and, you know, work through all that, you know. Thank you. And, like, I feel like we've been chatting for plenty of while, so, like, I think we may as well soon to wrap this in interview up because we've managed to probably quite, uh, you know, chops the baguette and could with a drink. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to... I'd love to come back next year if that's okay because I, I, I feel like I'll be in a, a much stronger position next year um, and I am sorry I've not been able to really answer the questions that great today but I'd love to come back another time and and carry on this conversation with you. And with that, that's the end of this episode of the podcast. I want to thank again Sarah Jean Hanvey for joining me on this podcast episode and you can find her on social media at Agony Orti where you can find more of her work, more of her activism, more of her content that she says on platforms like you TikTok, YouTube, Twitter and Instagram and as well as Facebook and where you can you where you can find more about the different work, the different speeches the different campaigns he works on and thank you for listening to this episode as I said this is the last episode that comes out on a Sunday 
This uh, podcast continues weekly with the next episode out Thursday after Thursday morning even with Natalie Balamine on her experience with ADHD and uh, diabetes as well as doing stuff including Make Me Your Prime Minister, Channel 4's reality programme. And as I said, thank you very much for listening. This is uh, uh, presented by me, Autistically Al. And for the uh, um, New Rainbow Project, uh, the Autistically Al's New Orcast podcast. And you can find me on social media at New Rainbow Project. And you can find details of where you can email me and find me on social media in the link for the episode. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.